Hi, and welcome to today. So today, in 1851, India's first freight train is operated. The Embargo Act is signed by Thomas Jefferson in 1807. That banned all trade with foreign countries. It lasted a very long time, right up until the next president was in. And in 1885, Ito Hirobumi becomes the first prime minister of Japan. But today, today is something different for you. I have two stories for you, both of them about civil wars. So in 1680, Vitellius is captured and killed. I've mentioned something earlier in the rundown sequences about a year of the four emperors. Well, this is a nice little bow on that. Before I get into that, here's some background. Think of the worst Roman emperors. Tiberius, Caligula, Nero, Commodus. Three out of the four came from one dynasty, the first, the Julio-Claudians. Now, the reason so many terrible emperors were able to continue is that they were part of the Julio-Claudian family. But in 68, that family ended. Nero was assassinated. Now that the family is over, who rules? Now, that question was originally answered by the Senate. Galba was a man in great standing empire-wide. He had the backing of most of the governors and thus the military. Everyone thought he'd be great. But then he became emperor, and everyone found out that no, he was not fit. He made a terrible impression on the Rhine legions, and they immediately went into revolt supporting the guy named Vitellius for power. Now, Galba wasn't able to give out the bribes he needed to keep the Praetorians on his side. In fact, he didn't believe in bribing the army, his source of power realistically. He felt they should just do what he says. They didn't. Now, enter Otho. He wanted to be heir, but wasn't named heir. See, Galba didn't have any children, and he was an old man, so it was unlikely he was going to have any kids. Now, he knew he'd become emperor from a fortune teller and had Galba assassinated to do so. It wasn't that hard. Galba was really, genuinely a terrible human being. So, he gets Galba assassinated, becomes emperor of Rome, and he tried to get Vitellius to stand down. But the proverbial Rubicon had already been crossed. I mean, he's got the Rhine legions. Vitellius and Otho met for battle, and Otho had been bloodied in this battle but not beaten. But Otho saw the carnage and the death. He wasn't a military leader. His, literally, his main claim to fame was being Nero's drinking buddy. And because of that, he wasn't exactly used to all the violence and death that comes with an ancient battle. Otho didn't really sign up to kill off this many of his countrymen. So he wanted that to stop. To stop the carnage, he killed himself. Now, apparently, Vitellius was not amused and reportedly desecrated his grave. At this point, our fourth and final emperor arrives into our story, Vespasian. Vespasian had been putting down a Judean revolt, and using contacts he made while there, instigated the collapse of Vitellius. His armies, while not actually being led by him, and being reinforced by Otho's troops, beat back the Vitellian troops. Vespasian became emperor and Vitellius was killed on this day in 69 AD. Vespasian and his dynasty would mark a turning point. No longer would legitimacy be decided in the empire by relation to Augustus, but by who had the army at their back. 
Now, today's also notable as Sherman concluded his march to the sea. William Tecumseh Sherman was a military college superintendent in Louisiana prior to the Civil War. He wasn't an abolitionist, and he personally sympathized with the Southerners. But he felt that war would end poorly, and in a letter to a close friend, he correctly predicted the entire war. Quote, You people of the South don't know what you're doing. This country will be drenched in blood, and God only knows how it will end. It is all folly, madness, a crime against civilization. You people speak so lightly of war, you don't know what you're talking about. War is a terrible thing. You mistake, too, the people of the North. They are a peaceful people, but an earnest people, and they will fight, too. They are not going to let this country be destroyed without a mighty effort to save it. Besides... Where are your men and appliances of war to contend with them? The North can make a steam engine, locomotive, or railway car. Hardly a yard of cloth or pair of shoes can you make. You are rushing into war with one of the most powerful, ingeniously mechanical, and determined people on Earth. Right at your doors, you are bound to fail. Only in your spirit and determination are you prepared for war, and all else you are totally unprepared, with a bad cause to start with. At first you will make headway, but as your limited resources begin to fail, shut out of the markets of Europe as you will be, your cause will begin to wane. If your people will but stop and think, they must see in the end that you will surely fail. End quote. And yeah, that's how it went. When the war broke out, he joined the Union. And when they were in Atlanta, convinced General Grant to give him an army. He said he could, quote, make Georgia howl. And he did. He marched to Savannah, which is on the sea. The entire way he destroyed farms, railroads, anything really that could be used to support the South. Sherman felt he wasn't dealing with a hostile army, but a hostile people. And the only way to break them of the rebellious ways so is to make them feel the hard hand of war. He introduced total war to the U.S., and it was not pretty. Sherman's estimations on the damage, when adjusted to modern dollars, come to something about 1.4 billion. He annihilated the logistical ability of the South to maintain armies. He helped break the South, and he finished it off with a telegram he sent to Lincoln today, giving him a Christmas gift. Sherman was a talented general, but he didn't like it. He didn't like war at all. In a letter, he articulated his feelings about the war. Quote, I confess without shame, I am sick and tired of fighting. Its glory is all moonshine. Even success, the most brilliant, is over dead and mangled bodies, with the anguish and lamentations of distant families appealing to me for sons, husbands, and fathers. Tis only those who have never heard a shot, never heard the shriek and groans of the wounded and lacerated, that cry aloud for more blood, more vengeance, and more desolation. I find that interesting, as perhaps that is what Otho saw when he looked at the waste he had helped create with his grab on power. The dead and dying, the knowing that they were his fellow citizens. It's what he wanted, an end to the fighting, an end to the madness. He didn't want to become emperor, or at least keep his throne. Not like that. Of course, it was not the end of the fighting. It was not the end of the bloodshed. That would come later. Of course, there doesn't actually have to be bloodshed. When you're replacing a king anyways. Come back tomorrow, and I'll show you what it looks like when they overthrow a king 
but no one dies. If you have any questions or concerns, you can reach me at todayhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And have a nice day.